Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to another edition of the Food Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Coming up on today's show, we discuss a struggling Italian restaurant chain. We'll also talk about Chipotle's very up and down week with both queso and norovirus dominating the headlines. And we'll also talk about a cased meat recall. But first, we begin with Subway as they're desiring to refresh all of their stores in a new proposal that could take a full three years to implement. And Leighton, they've redesigned their logo. They've redesigned some of their stores throughout the country. We get pieces of this redesigned puzzle that have been put together and... We're starting to see now the results from this, and I think consumers will see continued results from this over the next few years as many of their franchisees begin to switch over to this redesign. And this really stems from a lot of stories that we've discussed in the past on the Food Focus, one with the new app iterations, and then two, partnering with a lot of technology-based companies that really brings their brand into the 21st century. We see a lot of companies in the QSR industry trying to bring in in in-store kiosks, mobile ordering systems, and things of that nature. And a lot of executives and people surrounding the restaurant industry are saying that this is one way that they can really drive brand awareness and brand loyalty. Even for a vast chain, a chain as large as Subway, they can really utilize these tools and bring in the customers or at least keep the customers going to their individual restaurants. But executives at the privately held sandwich behemoth noted that customers were wanting even more from the brand. And that brings you into the fray, speaking about the redesign and the logo that happened in August of 2016, as well as a lot of new colors throughout the restaurant and a new back half. So where the people are that are servicing you when you go into a subway, that's all going to be redesigned. So we talk about a two-year process where they started discussing ways to really make an impact on their core customer. They rightly noted that Subway was once regarded as the few fresh and quality-focused QSRs in the U.S. And this wasn't that long ago that they had that perception. Obviously, they had the tagline, Subway, eat fresh, and that resonated with people. And so time has resulted in competitors showcasing more of a supply chain transparency and a throughput that is more in line with Subway's. And you can see that within Panera 2.0 and then what Chipotle has been doing with the back half of operations, trying to have a split line, one to really address the mobile ordering and one for those customers that are coming in and ordering in store. And you see in August of last year, I noted that their logo was changed for the first time in 10 years. This was part of that conversation, that ongoing conversation executives were having talking about rebranding their company and that marked only the sixth time in the company's history where the logo was actually changed and in doing so the logo if you look at it utilizes what company management calls the 1960s color palette but does stay true to their history and they did need a refresh in their individual stores and you see some of these new pilot locations actually just having an s with arrows at each end of the s signifying the subway location. So now we see that all the efforts are coming together with this unveiling of what they call the fresh forward stores. 
The company is ramping up the new layout and will have between three to 5,000 more refreshed store interiors by the end of this year. So this calendar year, they're going to have between three and 5,000 stores in total. Keep in mind, this is a global company. So the majority are going to be in the United States. They said 85% of those three to 5,000 stores are actually going to be revamped within the confines of the US. And so while not all the locations will have the same modern features, many will have those modern ordering kiosks and charging ports for customers' cell phones. Something that you've been saying a lot lately in terms of where people are as a central hub, like a, a Starbucks or something of that nature, they really want to take part and have that customer convenience aspect. The kiosk, to me, looks similar to those being piloted by McDonald's that we've talked about in the past. McDonald's is actually, for their part, piloting those in-store kiosks globally as they also have a global footprint. But you can also pay for your meal, not just order it when you look at these in-store kiosks. And I think kiosks work even better for Subway where you have that optionality. You have the extensive number of options there on your sandwich with the vast array of vegetables and also seasonings. You know, a lot of people forget when they go into a Subway of the different seasonings that you can get on your sandwich. Things like oregano, for example. Those will be more front of mind with customers using those kiosks. And as a result, in theory, the customer would get a product more tailored to their tastes. And that, in turn, is going to generate return customers to those same kiosk-laden stores. Overall, this move by management is being explained as an intensive remodel, but Don Furtman, their chief development officer, said that it's more than a remodel. While he was discussing this, he mentioned that it's a complete refresh from the signage in-store to the decor to the way that they're placing their vegetables. And what they're planning on doing is placing their vegetables as whole vegetables so that the customer can see the whole vegetables before they order. Now, this doesn't mean that the sandwich artists, as they are called, back behind the counter will be slicing each vegetable to order, but rather they will be displaying some of their fresh vegetables they get in off the truck before they cut them for the customer to see. This reminds me of the approach that Del Taco is taking with some of their fridges in the front of their new locations that have a lot of their raw materials that are eventually made into products in the back. You also think about a chain like Five Guys where there's just sacks of potatoes and peanuts hanging around the store for that very same reason. It seems as though people really like seeing that whole raw unused product and they like to see that entire supply chain. More and more QSRs and fast casuals are stepping into that and Subway is showing signs of it with this newest overhaul as well. We mentioned the additional locations being overhauled this year. What about the rest of those locations? Well, management knows this is not a small task, but at the same time, they want to make a quick transition so that all franchisees are on the same page. When you get a franchisee or two left out of a redesign like this, suddenly their stores become a little less inviting and customers that are used to experiencing the new refresh stores have to then basically travel back in time to one of the old not refreshed stores which can make it difficult for those franchisee sales to maintain at the same rate. 
it wasn't mentioned specifically in any releases or in interviews, but obviously it suits the brand well if all the different locations are on the same page. Layton mentioned the isolation of the simple S created by the negative space of the two arrows. They're starting to brand that a little bit more, of course, on their cups. But also it helps all Subway restaurants if the franchisees all share in those digital features. And there are a number of different reasons for it, but we know Subway... They were having issues across all franchisees, making sure that they were on the same page with technology and point of sale equipment. It makes it very difficult to respond to some sort of a breach in terms of that data if not everyone is using the same equipment and using the same format. And it seems pertinent to mention that Subway is the biggest QSR in the world by number of locations, not by revenue. They have far less revenue per location than, say, McDonald's, which is known for some of the highest average unit volumes in the world, locations getting well over $1 million per site. Subway being privately held, very tough to gauge in terms of annual sales, but according to Nation's Restaurant News Top 100 data, their average sales per restaurant sit around $420,000, which is towards the lower end of QSR restaurants. And Leighton, it's because of this, because franchisees aren't swimming in dough, you might have an issue if you're Subway trying to get everyone to refresh their locations. I was looking and really seeing some insightful interviews from Subway franchisees that really were delving into their financial models, either previous franchisees or current existing ones throughout the United States. And they said many Subways actually have franchisees that own three to four, maybe even less locations. So you think of these franchisees typically often having a lot of locations to try to leverage their size and try to get economies of scale. But you see subways a lot exist in these smaller markets where there's literally only room for maybe only one or two units per city. And so you're seeing the profit margin overall is cited to be around between 20 and 25 percent. That means the franchisee is actually only pocketing around $85,000 a year based off of what you had said the average sales were, Trent, at $420,000 per unit. Obviously, some are going to be sitting on more popular street corners. And some may be getting almost double that revenue number. But if you take the average here, you can see that this $85,000 a year in net income per franchisee, and you equate that to how much these remodels are going to be, it's between $200,000 and $300,000 per refresh per location, meaning the return on investment on a single store could take between three to five years, which is often the amount of time, the exact amount of time it takes to open a store from scratch. A lot of franchisees were citing costs between $100,000 and $250,000 to have a startup restaurant. And you see that this cost could go down slightly as they learn how to build out and more effectively change up certain restaurant footprints. But again, this points to franchisees being potentially more reluctant to change their current restaurants if they know it'll be cheaper to wait long term. So again, another reason for franchisees to wait as these costs come down for the remodels and then also to really see what other more pronounced franchisees are doing in their particular markets. It's a smart thing to do is to wait, but development agents or as Subway calls them, regional managers oversee certain sites around the country and it's really going to be a burden on them to monitor and see 
what locations are going to be going first because in a particular market, you're not necessarily seeing just one franchisee. You may have three to four that operate in a fairly large city. And so it's going to be a little tough to negotiate which ones have the remodel first and which ones that are maybe unwilling to change their ways, at least in the short to mid term. So with around 45 locations, with around 45,000 locations globally, the company does see a larger timeline because of these issues for 100% adoption. They said around three years from now, in fact, they'll want all the locations to have switched over, but three years is a lot of time. The emphasis still seems to be on the locations in the U.S., and that makes sense, Trent, because around 30,000 of the 45,000 locations globally are here domestically. So a lot to look forward to. And I'm curious, all the subways that surround myself haven't yet switched over with a lot of the things they're doing. So I'm curious to see how this works, not only for the customers, but for the company's bottom line, as they'll look to be reporting on some of these things in the future, although not too much in depth, because as you mentioned, Trent, they are privately held. From the QSR sector into the full-service restaurant sector, and in fact, the upscale casual sector is Bravo Brio Restaurant Group Incorporated reported Monday that same-store sales fell yet again during their latest quarter, but that the company is looking to gain off of momentum from what they saw as the best quarter in five years. Bravo Brio is a company that's made up of two different Italian restaurant concepts and a third concept with only one location. The first two are Bravo Cucina Italiana and Brio Tuscan Grill, as well as Bon V Bistro with the sole location in Columbus, Ohio. They, like so many other Italian full-service restaurants, use what they call authentic Italian cooking methods. Their main company mission is to be, and I quote, the best Italian restaurant company in America, and they're focused on providing their guests excellent dining experiences. Again, that's from their website. Now, again, you could have copied and pasted that from Johnny Carino's or Olive Garden or just about any other Italian restaurant site. There's not a lot of differentiators in this space for some of these restaurants. We'll talk about what Bravo Brio is attempting to use as a differentiator a little bit later on. They have nearly 120 restaurants throughout the U.S. Right now, 117. So they're not a small full-service chain. The locations are almost equally divided between the Bravo and the Brio concepts. They were founded back in 92 in Columbus, Ohio, which is where that one Bon V Bistro is located. And they went public just about seven years ago, October of 2010. There was a degree of fanfare surrounding their IPO under ticker BBRG as at the time they were in a growth phase. However, their second quarter same-store sales results contributing to the period June 25th suggests that growth phase has long been done for the company. As we mentioned at the top of this story, this was their best quarter in quite some time in terms of same-store sales declines, but they still saw a same-store sales decline, which was the 18th consecutive quarter that's happened. Yeah, it was quoted as being a good same-store sales month or months for the period, but you see that the decline was just 1%, which was actually their lowest decline in quite some time. And in an article in Nation's Restaurant News, they referenced that it was their best showing since the fourth quarter in 2012. But that's a, actually a little bit deceiving because typically when we're talking about a good showing, we're talking about growth. And so it was a little bit odd 
that they're citing a negative 1% same store sales metric as being good, but their sales are still not expected to be in great shape. And you compound their growth rate since 2012, it's actually vastly negative. And as an example, we go back to the first quarter of 2017 here recently, where the revenues were $106.7 million. But if you go back to that 2012 year, before these declines started happening, their last positive comp quarter, in fact, revenue came in at $98.4 million, just 80% of their current store base. And so if you put it another way, quarterly unit volumes for the first quarter in 2012 were $1.027 million. Now, if you do the math, $912,000 per unit, a decline, a double-digit decline for them, 11.2%. Their CEO, Brian O'Malley, credited some of the turnaround, the recent turnaround to their banquet business, basically an internalization of what Olive Garden is attempting with their catering program. Bravo Brio is closing off larger sections of their locations and devoting them to private meeting space or private dining rooms. And Trent, I think one of the reasons this could be happening is because traffic could be falling at these restaurants. And so if you have these larger locations, a larger footprint, with space not really being utilized at high peak times of the day, you can make something like a banquet room happen and try to drive traffic that way. And I think that's a smart thing for the company to do because, as we had mentioned, double-digit declines in top-line revenue as those unit counts are coming in. And you can see they've also worked on their to-go concepts of late as well. They mentioned delivery in a June business update. However, they still have yet to answer for margins even though Topline isn't a total train wreck any longer. Their first quarter saw revenues fall 1.9%, comps fell 2.3%, but restaurant-level operating margin fell a whopping 12.2%. So even though they may be operating at a slightly better degree, their overall margins are what shareholders are going to be looking at. And you see this is indicative in their share price as it has fallen off not just in the last year, but over the past few years. So with all this sales trouble, one would be correct to assume that they're having some financial issues. And in fact, the reason we've heard so much from Bravo Brio over the last few months is because they're trying to work out some financial deals with Wells Fargo as well as other lenders. So what they've done over the past couple of months is they put out a press release with maybe a paragraph, sometimes a few paragraphs saying that, hey, same store sales isn't as bad as what we thought or, hey, we're turning the business around and then they get to the nitty gritty of the financial details. So in this case, or the latest press releases case, the same store sales and the fact that they haven't declined quite as much, despite the fact that this wasn't a full earnings call, they were offered as kind of an olive branch, it seemed like, to investors, in part because they mentioned later on an extension of a requirements waiver in their lending line with Wells Fargo, among other lenders. Basically, this requirement stipulated that their debt-to-profitability ratio, or their leverage ratio had to be at a certain point. And after their latest quarter, it wasn't at this point or after the conclusion of their current credit agreement, it wasn't at this point. This is partly due to the fact that they acquired a few loans during their second quarter, which kind of speaks to their further financial instability, their need to kind of get into reserves and into some of their ability to lend from lenders. Getting this continued waiver, however, as announced earlier this week, at least extends their financial lives 
for another year or more. They hope to work out a more permanent agreement towards the end of August. Now, this whole facet in the press release was buried in the fourth paragraph. And as I mentioned, they've done the same thing in other releases where they'll announce a business update, talk for a paragraph or two about how the business is turning it around, and then get into some of these financial details. And part of the reason they might be wanting to hide some of these details in plain sight from shareholders is because their balance sheet isn't looking all that good. They're going to need a quick turnaround and some of these same store sales metrics to start pointing northward if they're going to retain any semblance of liquidity. During this last quarter, which was the first quarter of fiscal year 2017, they had $377,000 in cash and cash equivalents. Now, this sounds modest for a restaurant chain this size, but you compare it to what they had at the end of the prior quarter of quarter four of fiscal year 2016, it was $444,000. So they're running through a lot of money and the run rate at this rate would last them about five more quarters before they start going in the negative in terms of cash and cash equivalents on hand. So they're starting to run out of cash and they're starting to run out of options to turn it around. And one of the reasons that we talk about them on this show, not only the fact that they're having this financial instability, but also the fact that their same store sales are slightly better. However, let it be known that really they'll have to start seeing better same store sales numbers at some point in time. In fact, positive comps if they're going to turn it around as a restaurant, because at current sales levels, they are losing money. We switch gears from restaurants to products. This time in hot dogs as they're in the news again, hitting media outlets across the country with news of over 7 million pounds of hot dogs being recalled to alleged bone fragments. And we look at the details of this particular recall while the USDA Food and Inspection Service has more on their website about health safety notices pertaining to contaminations and other alerts, they have much fewer instances of actual official recalls. This was a recall dated from July 15th. They announced a Marathon Enterprises hot dog recall that spans multiple brands. They have a lot of sub-brands there. This is a Class 1 recall, and this is actually the most urgent kind of recall. This is described as a health hazard situation where there is a reasonable probability that the use of the product will cause serious adverse health consequences or death. Obviously, this does sound fairly serious, and this is one of the reasons we're talking about it. But the other reason is I personally saw this on my local news channel. Not oftentimes they talk about national recalls of products, particularly in the food industry. So a lot of this is very important to get out there, and we feel it necessary to discuss on this edition of the podcast. But you see how massive this recall is. It encompasses, as I mentioned at the top, over 7 million pounds, mostly beef, pork, and other sausage products are going to be included as well. The hot dogs may be contaminated with what they call extraneous materials, thus prompting the recall. And I had mentioned here, bone fragments were actually noted. This poses a choking risk, of course, but also a tooth risk. So far, only one minor oral injury has resulted from the affected products, according to the USDA notice. The problem was not, in fact, discovered through the manufacturer or their processes, as is often the case. We see instead it was discovered by the USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service, who monitored consumer complaints that reflected pieces of bone in the meat. And this is worrisome as the manufacturer did not catch the issue 
with their self-inspection steps. Obviously, a lot of food manufacturers, especially something like this, they have a lot of inspection processes down in the production line. Nothing from the USDA notes what the manufacturer Marathon Enterprises is doing or has done to remedy the issue. However, this would speak to the enormous recall size. If Marathon caught themselves, there is a much greater likelihood that the recall notice would affect a lot smaller amount of products. There are multiple different brands affected Trent. And as we noted, a lot of sub brands within the very large corporation that is Marathon could you discuss some of these staples and how they're going to affect these different products? The large share of the products are Sabret products, so hot dogs, sausages, that type of thing. A huge name along the East Coast and particularly in the Northeast. All of these recalled products will have EST8854 inside the USDA inspection mark that's on the front of the packaging. And they've got on the USDA website an entire list of of the recalled products and it's interesting because they note product packaging saying about 50 beef francs or about 20 beef francs but it seems like nearly everything in the sabret cased meat offerings is being recalled as well as papaya king beef frankfurters the store packaged ones that is are also affected Stu leonards.com beef franks and nathan's private label hot dogs of various sizes also effective and also one of the lone slicing meats in this recall, Katz's Delicatessen Salami, has also been recalled in this circumstance. So a lot of total product. People are encouraged to return problematic products to the place of purchase or at least not consume them, even throw them out or throw them away. If you've already consumed them, hopefully you haven't gotten a piece of bone course in the hot dog or sausage so one thing Leighton and I wanted to do anytime there's a food recall we look at kind of the macro and see how this might affect the overall landscape and in this case we're looking at hot dogs and sausages nearly 7.2 million pounds of hot dogs and sausages so we wanted to see just how many that was in comparison to how many was consumed by the U.S. in a given year. We should remember, of course, that not all of these recalled products were hot dogs, just most of them, but we have more numbers for hot dogs than we do for sausages. Americans purchase 350 million pounds of hot dogs from retail stores each year, and of course, we're worried here about hot dogs that are being packaged for retail sales, so that's really the number we're concerned with. That number, according to the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council, there is such a thing, in case you're wondering. So this recall is a ref is reflective, according to this number, of about 2% of the overall annual hot dog consumption from retail stores in the United States. However, we should note that according to Nielsen Research, 1 billion pounds of hot dogs were sold in retail stores in the U.S. in 2016. That's a number about three times as much as what the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council claims. This would put the recall number effect at just 0.72% of all hot dogs being sold in the U.S. Now, if you include the amount of hot dogs sold in restaurants, this number drops even further as it's estimated that restaurant sales account for over 50% of total hot dog consumption in the U.S. Now, this recall affects mostly New York-based brands. One might think New York is perhaps the hot dog consumption capital of the U.S. However, we found it interesting to find that L.A. is actually the hot dog consumption capital of the U.S., 
36 million pounds per year. New York is second, Philadelphia third. However, residents of New York did spend more on hot dogs in retail stores last year than did their counterparts in L.A. $101.7 million, and that was more than any other city on that list owing to higher supermarket costs in New York. We talked not too long ago on the Food Focus about how egg prices were significantly more expensive in New York. The same thing is true of hot dogs. More interesting in terms of the recall, though, is that the recall comes in peak hot dog consumption season in the U.S. 818 hot dogs are consumed every second from Memorial Day to Labor Day on average in the U.S. Nearly 35% of all U.S. consumption takes place during this period. So it stands to reason that Marathon and the Sabret brand could experience significant losses above and beyond product loss and, of course, the brand harm that comes along with something like this. Since the recall is happening during their busiest time of the year, which they no doubt plan for months in advance. Overall, hot dog sales are steady in the U.S. retail-wise, and they're driven partially by popularity of high-protein foods offset by some health concern regarding cased meats. The National Hot Dog and Sausage Council does note, however, that the vast majority of new brands and brand extensions that were introduced in 2016 and 2017 were all natural or organic. So there's a little bit of a look at the larger industry as a whole, along with this massive 7.2 million pound sausage and hot dog recall. Just a quick note is Trent did a great job in highlighting the big macro for the hot dog and sausage industries. But you see overall at the micro side, the microeconomic side of this, people tend to think that other brands, other companies are going to be able to profit off of the reduction in sales from these particular brands. However, that may not be the case because with such negative publicity, a lot of media outlets, again, a lot of local media outlets covering this, you tend to think that the other substitute goods, those goods that should be able to profit off of this may not actually. You might see an overall reduction in hot dog and sausage sales because of all the negative sentiment around the industry. So a lot to take in here. I'm curious to see if the bigger numbers end up resulting in a downward trend because of the news from just one particular company. A lot to look forward to in the hot dog industry. One to look into as the big picture. You can see that a lot of sales are in the summertime. It is probably looking to be a headache for those marathon executives right now. We move on to our last story. This with Chipotle, our favorite restaurant inside the United States, or favorite because you could say that we talk about it the most on the podcast, but a couple of news stories surrounding the chain as they had a nice boost in pre-market trading on Tuesday as a result of an analyst note talking about their queso. However, that was actually counteracted even more so by the news of a norovirus shutting down a particular location. But we begin with the queso, and you see the queso rumbling started as we were recording about last week, and we wanted to wait on it a little bit to make sure we didn't discuss something that was unsubstantiated. Queso was among a handful of new items that debuted at their next kitchen, their public test kitchen in New York City. And most recently, the kitchen was the origination point for the chorizo, which we know has had a nationwide rollout and really has provided a slight sales boost to the stores last year at this time. The other items were, according to USA Today, frozen margaritas and a salad. Of course, the public hasn't been advocating these for the last several years, so not a ton of media coverage about the other items. 
Mark Krumpacher, Chipotle CMO, said that the test markets could begin to see queso as soon as a month from now. The first markets were actually going to be in Colorado, no surprise, which of course Denver, Colorado is their headquarters and California. So some of their bigger markets there. But Trent, you see how queso really has been evolving and how a lot of Chipotle's competitors have used it in the past, but this is going to be a specific recipe, something that the company seems very adamant about that customers are going to take a liking to. Yeah, I think the larger question, too, that some customers of Chipotle might have is why only now? And the short answer is that they're desperate to drive sales at this point. No word on whether Mr. Ackman is a driving force behind this. Of course, Bill Ackman, activist investor, is a larger stake in Chipotle now. But you know that Chipotle has to begin appeasing shareholders somehow since every time there is an outbreak of some sort or every time there is a slight health issue at one of the stores, the stock tanks. And that's what we saw today as Leighton referenced this earlier in the story the closed restaurant that they shuttered due to norovirus issues was in Virginia. This was a voluntary closure. The restaurant's expected to reopen actually Tuesday, July 18th. And one thing Leighton and I were talking about before we came on, if every restaurant stock plummeted like this after a norovirus closure, there would be basically no one's stock left to trade in the restaurant industry. There's a lot of QSRs and fast casuals that have issues with norovirus. It's not isolated to just Chipotle. In fact, at one point in time in the not-so-distant future, an Arby's near where I lived at that point in time had to shut down because of norovirus concerns. They reopened. And you didn't hear anything about it on the national level. But Chipotle is such a lightning rod for this type of thing that their stock plummeted about 6.5% on Tuesday or during Tuesday's trading. The important part, though, this doesn't appear to have any legs beyond this one restaurant and could have easily been spread by someone other than an employee, although usually it is employee to food contact in a restaurant. But, you know, if someone has a sick kid or something like that, that kid touches a number of surfaces, people can get sick just as easily from that method as anything else. This norovirus is very quickly spread, although usually not this time of year, usually during the winter months, you know, about November to April. Back to why they're introducing queso, though, that's one of the reasons is because they have to be able to make themselves withstand some of these issues, like, for example, the norovirus issue, a little bit more in the long term. As far as the company is concerned, we saw just how much health issues impacted their same store sales over the last couple of years. If you introduce queso, that's one more reason for people to come into your restaurants. In the past, they didn't have to worry about this as much since sales were strong regardless of what they did. You think back to 2012, 2013, sales were very robust. We noted last year during that chorizo rollout, there were a number of social media commenters saying that what they really wanted wasn't chorizo, but rather queso. And now those people seem to be getting their wish. Another argument that Chipotle always had against putting queso out in their stores and something that Crumpacker mentioned is that they've been asked to provide queso pretty much since they'd opened is that they need some sort of synthetic or non-all-natural additives to keep the cheese, the appropriate texture, and the serving bowls 
on the line. Of course, the line is heated, but still with traditional queso, you get kind of that skin on top, that gummy texture that's less than ideal for customers. And it also creates some waste because when you get that gummy texture on the queso that maybe you don't have a lot left in that serving bowl, you end up oftentimes having to throw it away. However, this argument was a little bit odd to me because they've had so long to develop something that works like what they've just developed that you feel like they could have rolled out queso maybe two or three years ago and it would have allowed them to more easily persevere through some of the health concerns. There are a lot of smaller Mexican restaurants that are authentic Mexican restaurants often make in-house queso using cheese, milk, and some sort of pureed vegetable to keep the texture consistent when that product's on the line. Sometimes that vegetable is carrots. Sometimes it's a different vegetable, but there are other restaurants doing this and you kind of wonder why Chipotle isn't. And Leighton, I think our theory kind of comes from the fact that this could be a magic bullet from them. They're stabilizing the queso with potato and tapioca starch to keep it a uniform texture when it's out front. And Crumb Packer did speak to the different texture. Some have called it grainy, but early reviews have been positive on the product. Yeah, despite those saying that it has a grainy texture, reviewers have found that the queso is remarkably flavorful, which is a good sign for the company. Given the market competitors, apparently Chipotle uses jalapenos, cumin, oregano, chiles, tomatoes, and tomatillos. The latter would work well with the tanginess of the cheddar, which the cheese base is, of course, cheddar. Multiple reviewers noted the grittiness, which Krompacher had alluded to, saying that the texture is a bit grainy. But across the board, people applauded the spicy and rich flavor profile. After all, this is really what Chipotle's mission has been over the last 20 years is to provide common products but have been prepared in such a way these old-fashioned techniques to really emphasize the flavor and to enrich the person's flavor palette and I think overall you can see that customers are excited about this and as a background we're actually fairly critical that developments in test kitchens will ever make it to the public as the number of food products that have been teased far outnumbers the number of releases Still, this looks to be one that has a positive sentiment behind it, so it actually looks like it will come to fruition or at least come to some more test markets in the future. Still, as the week wore on, it became clear that more and more people were wanting to get their hands on the product, something that we've alluded to with blogs and news outlets alike posting comparisons with Moe's queso and Qdoba's queso. Those types of things were really differentiators for those restaurants. And we look to get some clarity in Steven Anderson's note from Maxim Group, and we see that potentially this is going to be a long-term thing for Chipotle. Anderson increased his rating on Chipotle to buy from hold after noting that the introduction of queso, and I quote, will be an important catalyst for Chipotle in 2018. So taking the long position there, not really looking at the short-term news releases of the neurovirus affecting one sole location in Chipotle's portfolio. He also raised his price target to $470 from $440. Right now, the stock price is around $370 as of recording this podcast. The stock has really been hindered over the last month and a half, topping out around $500, but has dropped to around a $400 resistance level, which right now, if you look and compare that price target that he has given, is significantly above the average price over the last couple of weeks for Chipotle's stock. He was actually bearish on the stock about seven months ago, which would indicate that the company is headed in the appropriate direction, or at least from the analyst point of view. 
While we don't give stock advice on our shows typically, we do note that Anderson said that the potential for upside from Queso provides an opportunity for investors to participate in their recovery. And this is something that we had talked about before airing this podcast trend is you and I aren't huge investors, but we do invest from time to time. Looking at the price currently at that $370 level, this is actually below some of the average estimates for Bill Ackman's stake in Chipotle. Obviously, Bill Ackman has quite the stake, around 10% or so, but he has given his rights to sell shares in the next year or so. Rights meaning that he could sell at any given time with no notice, but it's unclear as to whether he's actually bought in more at this lower price point or has kept the same position in the company. Overall, the company is trading at a fairly low price relative to the recent past. Yeah, we'll conclude here with kind of our take on the Queso edition by Chipotle, since Chipotle is a business that we talk about a lot here on the podcast. Leighton and I kind of talked about this before we came on. To sum it up, we feel like Queso is something that not only adds to the menu and is another new menu item for Chipotle, but it increases the diversity of upsells as well, which is probably the more important part of this rollout. It may increase some side orders, chips and queso, for example, but we feel like the more remarkable impact in terms of store sales will be in upsells because currently their upsells have been pretty much guac and extra meat. So this gives them an important third option. Anything that bolsters top line revenue would be a good thing in the eyes of analysts. But more importantly, we also feel like this could be a traffic driver, the likes of which we haven't seen in a restaurant since all day breakfast rolled out at McDonald's. So this is not something that we take lightly, this rollout of queso. Again, there has been a lot of customer sentiment regarding the fact that Chipotle does not have queso and in fact there are a number of customers of Moe's and Qdoba who are customers of those two restaurants simply because they do sell queso and now that differentiator has vanished for them it'll be interesting to see how many customers from Moe's and Qdoba Chipotle can convert to bring up those traffic numbers while also increasing the amount per ticket with the increased ability to upsell. Between social media reaction and customer conversion here, we may see same-store sales increase by double digits or at least high single digits during the first quarter of the rollout. So the first full quarter that Chipotle has queso, Leighton and I expecting those same-store sales to go up by a significant margin. We've reached the final segment of the Food Focus, a segment we call What We Ate, where each Leighton and I tell you about one product that we tried that's either new to the world of food or new to us, as far as we're concerned, regarding food. And we begin with Leighton. Well, I'm going to highlight a sandwich I tried from, you guessed it, a chain that we discussed in this edition of the podcast from Subway, as it was both a new product for Subway and a new product for myself. It came out in, I think, March of this year. And They had debuted a new Italian hero sandwich that was a limited time at participating locations. The sandwich actually had some spicy capicola, mortadella, and some Genoa salami to go with your choice of cheese, condiments, and of course, veggies and bread, which of course, Subway is known for. And to me, I added a little bit of red wine vinegar and some oil to give it some flavor and some some liquidity there. But overall, you can see that the sandwich is a limited time sandwich as Subway does this quite often, but it was something that struck me as interesting. Anything Italian there is going to catch my eye. And you can see the Italian hero was actually previously offered 
in Southern California back in 2014 or 2015. From what I experienced from the sandwich, it was a little spicy, but overall something I would expect given its ingredients. And if you look at its nutritional info, you can see that it's a fairly average sandwich in terms of calories and fat from a typical Subway sandwich. You see that for a six inch sub, it had 550 calories, 23 grams of fat, and around 1400 milligrams of sodium. But the protein, the almighty protein, 26 grams of protein due to the meats and cheeses there. But overall, very tasty sub. And if you still have it in your market, I recommend that you go to your local Subway and try it. That's the first time I've ever heard of someone adding liquidity to a sandwich there. Uh, <laughs> it's good to see that they're, the balance sheet of that particular sandwich was solid. So I went to the freezer section of my local grocery store. And a fun fact about me is that I don't get along well with lactose. I don't drink a lot of milk. I cannot do ice cream without a lot of stomach pain. So I've been trying out different dairy-free ice creams, and I started with almond milk ice cream, wasn't that impressed. I went to coconut milk ice cream, it was okay. But I tried something this last week when I was going to a gathering. It was actually a, a home run derby watch party that took place last week, and I brought this ice cream to it, and I feel like it deserves to be talked about. It's from So Delicious. It's an ice cream that's in their fairly large line of dairy free ice creams but this was made with a cashew milk base and this was the closest thing to actual ice cream I have tasted since I started trying out some of the dairy free ice creams this cashew milk ice cream that I had the brand extension was new it's a snickerdoodle brand extension or at least it's a newer brand extension it only started distribution on a national basis recently the ingredients start with cashew milk but here's the most impressive thing it actually has chunks of snickerdoodle in it but those chunks of snickerdoodle are gluten-free as well so the only possible allergen this ice cream contains is cashew the snickerdoodle dough is actually made with a base of potato and tapioca flour the same thing that you might find in chipotle's queso 10 grams of fat 190 calories per serving per half cup serving and you notice the sugar comes in at about 20 grams just two grams of protein so it's still not necessarily the best in the world for you but one of the differentiators regarding this in addition to the intensely creamy texture that replicated ice cream in a way not a lot of other dairy-free products did the fact that this was filling made it a good option because I'll be honest, when I got a pint of almond milk ice cream, I went through the entire pint in one sitting. In this case, I bought a pint. It was about $5 on the price point, and it actually lasted the legitimate four servings. I only had a half cup each time because it is filling, it is rich, and it is flavorful. So I was very pleasantly surprised. I know I'll be going back for more in the future. They have other extensions. I can't have the chocolate ones, actually, because I'm allergic to chocolate. They have dark chocolate truffle and chocolate cookies and cream. That sounds fantastic. Salted caramel cluster. That is another new rollout with their snickerdoodle. But all of these are in their cashew milk line of ice creams. And again, the price point, about $5 a pint. So it is in that premium segment, but it is well worth the expenditure. That'll do it for us here on the Food Focus Podcast. For Leighton, I'm Trent saying so long until later this week. We'll have a brand new episode of Retail Focus where we'll talk about two rival grocers, Kroger and Lidl, and their continued issues with litigation regarding private label brands. Check us out on Twitter at The Food Focus or shoot us an email, retailpodcast at gmail.com. Until later this week, so long. Mm-hmm.
been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.